I think if after church we were to load up and go to the Oxford Exchange and ask people, what does God love mean to you? I think we would get a lot of different answers. Uh, some would say that since God is love, that means God doesn't judge us. They would say that nobody's perfect and God loves us the way we are. And, and one day we're just going to go spend eternity with him. Others make so much of God's love that there's this imbalance with God. Um, but because we are familiar with the Bible, we see other attributes given to God. We see characteristics of God such as God is holy, God is just, God is merciful, and the list goes on. But if we focus on the love of God so much that we forget all these other attributes, then we've distorted the picture of who God is. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, we're going to read 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, just to get a broader look at the context. And then in the message, we're going to primarily focus on verses 9 and 10. So that's 1 John chapter 4 starting at verse 7. And it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God or does not love does not know God because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So we see there doesn't have to be any confusion about the phrase, God is love. In 1 John 4, verse 7, we see that love is from God. And then when we go to verse 8, John turns around and tells us that God is love. John Piper puts it this way. He says, when John says that love is from God, he doesn't mean it's from him the way letters are from a mailman or even letters are from a friend. He means that love is from God the way heat is from fire or the way light is from the sun. Love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. The sun gives light because it is light and fire gives heat because it is heat. So to get a grasp on God's love and to make sure that it's a right view of it, we have to look at how God demonstrated it. And when we think about the Christmas story, we see love radiating from God. We get a view into God's nature. We turn to Scripture and see what God, God's love looks like because Scripture lays it out plainly. And in this particular passage, we see... Um, what God's love looks like, and everything that it entails. And we know what God's look, love looks like because it has been made manifest to us. It has been put on public display so that we can see and we can appreciate it. So when we look at 1 John 4 verses 9 and 10, I want the goal of this message to help us to revel in God's love. And as we look at God's love, I want him to help us to love others in the same way in which he loves us. 
And to do that, today we are going to look at three ways Christmas reveals God's love. Three ways God's love is revealed in the first advent of Christ. And what we see here first is Christmas reveals the gift of God's love. Christmas reveals the gift of God's love. Let's look back at verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. We know God wasn't surprised by the fall of man. He knew that we would need a savior. And when we consider our sin and we consider our rebellion against God, we rejoice at the Christmas story. The seed that was promised way back in Genesis 3 after the fall has now come. The long-awaited Messiah has been, he has made his arrival. You know, last week, Andrew, he talked about the incarnation. Emmanuel, God with us, has stepped into human history in human form. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we know God has never been fully visible to the human eye. But what we see here is that Jesus in his first advent, in his first coming, has made God known. As God made flesh, Jesus makes the invisible God visible in his character, in his words, and in his action. John Stott says that the coming of Christ is a concrete historical revelation of God's love. And what is revealed about God's love through the sending of his son is that it's self-sacrificial. It seeks the positive good of others at one's own, own cost. And there's no greater given of self than God's gift of his only son. And when you think about it today, it just seems so cliche to say, well, the only gift that matters is Jesus. But we can't lose our all of this truth. God sent his only son into the world. He is the co-eternal second member of the Trinity in human flesh sent to bear and reveal the glory of God. He's fully God and he's fully man. But the phrase his only son is pointing us to see that God the son is unique in the sense that he is the only son. We see this in Luke seven twelve when we see that a man has died and it describes him as the only son of his mother. So the emphasis here is on the fact that this is God's only son. His one and only son has been sent into the world as a gift. If we remember in Genesis chapter 22, I think there's an example of the usage of this phrase, only, only son that I believe will help us get a, a better grasp of the costliness of this gift, one that hits our hearts hard from a human perspective. In verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 22, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
do we see the weight of this thing that God has commanded of Abraham? Abraham was promised a son by God himself. Abraham and Sarah were old when they had Isaac. He was the heir to the promise. Now God is asking Abraham to offer him as a burnt offering. God is asking him to take the son that he was promised, the son that he waited for, the son that he fretted over, wondering if he would ever have one, the son that he loves, he is now being asked to kill. But we know how the story ends. God provides and Isaac lives. Now we see God with his only son, the one he has eternal harmony with, the one he shares perfect community and perfect love with, and he sends him into a world that will hate him, that will kill him. But God still provides in this time with a lamb, a spotless lamb, the one that we come to celebrate at Christmas. Now I want you to imagine this, and even though it's a, a poor example, I want you to think if you have kids that one day one of your kids grows up and, and says, I, I feel called to be a missionary. And I know this country that really needs the gospel. The only thing is there's a 100% chance that I'm going to die when I go over there. I'm not going to make it back. You know, our first thought isn't to pay for their flight over there. We would be torn at the, at the decision. This is, you know, a really good thing they are being led to do, but we want them to stay with us. It's natural for us to prioritize our kids' safety. We want to keep them close. When I think of my kids, it would be hard for me to let them go because I love them and I want them to be near me. I want them to be at home because I can shelter them. I can protect them. But with God... He knew we would need a savior and he sent his son into the world. The parable of the tenants in Mark 12 shows us this perfectly. Jesus tells of a man who planted a vineyard and he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to get some fruit from the vineyard, but they beat the servant and they sent him away with nothing. So the man sends another servant and he says they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent another and they killed him. And many others and they beat them or they killed them. And he still had another, his beloved son. So he sends his son thinking they would respect his son. But the tenants took the man's son and they killed him. Do we see the weight of the gift? that God's given us. It's so easy to gloss over the truth at Christmas because we've become so accustomed to the story of Christ's birth. But this truth should penetrate our hearts that God in his love has sent his son into the world and through Christ he has manifested his love to us so that we may partake of it. The communion and the love that the Trinity has had for eternity has been extended to us through the coming of Christ. There's no more that God the Father could give us. There's nothing greater to give us. And this should affect us inwardly and outwardly. Does it impact the way we love others? Do we love like God does? Do we love with a self-sacrificial love? I saw a post on Facebook the other day that said, 
my toxic trait is doing things for people that they would never do the same for me. But that's what biblical love is. It costs us. So if God has given this gift of his son to us, what is your gift to others? Are you giving your, of yourself? Are you given of your time? Are you given of your resources? Christ is the source that binds us together as the body. So let God's love drive us away from love of self and into a love for each other no matter what it costs. So Jesus has made God's love manifest to us. Jesus is unique in the fact that as God's only son, he has been sent into the world. If God sent his only son into the world, what does that mean? We see that Jesus is also unique in his purpose. And that brings us to the next point. Christmas reveals the goal of God's love. Christmas reveals the goal of God's love. Let's read verse 9 one more time. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Not only do we see the nature of God's love through the gift of his son, when we continue in verse 9, we see the intention or the goal of God's love. And we see that God's love is not made, you know, manifest in the sending of Christ only, but it's made manifest in the purpose in which he has sent Jesus to fulfill. Jesus has been sent into the world so that we might live. We are dead and we need life. So when we see the phrase that we might live, it means life in an eternal sense. What we see here in verse 9 carries the same meaning of John 3.16, which we all know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, when we see eternal life mentioned, it is always identified with Jesus or it is always said to be found in Jesus. In John 17.3, it says, and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So we see the sending of Jesus is directly tied with our eternal life. If we were to flip back over to 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, it says that the life was made manifest. This again is talking about eternal life. Then if you flip over to chapter 5 and verses 11 and 12, it reads, God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son of God has not life. So we see Jesus is our life. If we share in fellowship with him, we share in life. Eternal life has been made available through faith in Jesus. And this is all possible because Jesus is eternal. The first verse in 1 John opens with that which was from the beginning. So what was from the beginning? One commentator put it this way, Christ was there when creation began. He is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. Christ, our life, has eternally existed with God. 
The incarnation is what we celebrate at Christmas. But we know that Jesus wasn't created, that he has always been. He is eternal. But he was sent by the Father when the time was right as a means that we might inherit eternal life. So what we see is not only in Jesus, the divine human Christ, but he is a life giver. And if he comes to give life, that means, as I said, we are spiritually dead before conversion. And we see this in Ephesians 2 when Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. We are all born dead spiritually. We all need a savior. And that's exactly what we see in scripture when the birth of Christ is being announced. In Matthew chapter 1, we see Gabriel appear to Joseph to tell him about the birth of Christ. And he says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. The fact is that we've all sinned and we all need a savior. Notice what Luke 2.11 says. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. We should identify with David when he says, against you only you have I sinned, talking about God. It is God that we rebel against. It is God's standard that we have fallen short of. And the truth is only God can can forgive us for sins against God. This is why God sent the Son of God into the world. The Son is God, and he has the authority to forgive sins. John MacArthur says, The miraculous gift of Christmas is God being born in a manger so we can be born again in his glory. Christmas means that God sent his son so that we could believe and have eternal life. God has given the gift of his son so that we might believe the gospel, so that we might be born again. Can you imagine what this means for us, that we can have eternal life? Well, we don't have to look too far. In Revelations chapter 21, it tells us, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Maybe you're struggling with something this morning. Maybe this time of the year brings about anxiety. Maybe it brings about depression. Maybe you've recently went through some tough circumstance or or a bad situation and you're just barely holding on to your faith. We have to remember that God is invested in our good. And I'm not talking about the health and wealth gospel, but that he's working all things for our good. If he has the goal To give us life, he is invested in your good. He has good purposes for you. You can trust him. He is making you more like Christ. He is sanctifying you. He is finishing the good work he started in you. So cling to the fact that he is good and he is gracious. 
meditate on this truth that those who he predestined, he will see through to glorification. The sending of Christ is the ultimate proof of God's goodness. If God is seeking your good, are you seeking the good of others? Knowing God is true life. Are you pursuing them in ways that are helping them to grow closer to God? Let the goodness of God in your life help to encourage people, to build up people, to disciple others. Love them intentionally with eternity in mind, with the fact that the good life is knowing God more fully. We've seen the manifestation of God's love through the sending of his son. We have seen that this gift of Christ was with the intention that we might live. But it poses the question, how can God give life to sinners? Verse 10 shows us how. Let's look at the third thing Christmas reveals. Christmas reveals the grace of God's love. Christmas reveals the grace of God's love. Let's read verse 10. It says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. To better understand the nature of the gift of God's love and the purpose of God's love, we have to look at what lies at the core, and that's God's grace. What we see in verse 10 is clear. This love from God did not start with us. We didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't live up to any condition to obtain it. God loved us. It's a preemptive love. It is unconditional, and it's a free love. It flows from God's sovereign goodwill. And he sets it on his people before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1 tells us in love, he predestined us for adoption. So this love is not rooted in nor based on us. It does not depend on us. We do nothing to add to or to subtract from the love God has for us. It's rooted in God, so it's constant and unchanging. When we go to the scriptures, we see that God's love is hard for us to fully comprehend, to get a grasp of. In one article I was reading, the author, he suggested that one of the reasons we put conditions on God's love is to try to get a better grasp of it. The Psalm 36, 5 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. There's no limit to God's love. It's not contained by time or space. It doesn't hold back when it comes to love. He gives everything, including his son. And in verse 10, we see that again, he points to the expression of his love in sending his son. We've looked at Jesus being sent as the gift of God's love and the purpose was so that we might live. Now we see the fulfillment of the purpose in the fact that Jesus came to be a propitiation for our sins. In my last class at school, I took a, a class on probate courts. So Alice Martin, which is the probate judge in Calhoun County, was my teacher. So one night we went to the courtroom to get a tour for class. And we got to look at the courtroom and all the offices but one of the things she pointed out was the 
public records that were all over the place. There were things like deeds and wills that are stored there at the courthouse that anybody can come in and look at. Now, I'm just paraphrasing, but I think it was John Calvin who said something to the effect that the Bible was the public record of God's character. We've been looking at God's love today and how it's been made manifest to us. And it's wonderful to meditate on, the, on this and to reflect on the love of God, but we would be terribly amiss if we just focus on his love and ignore the rest of who the word has revealed God to be. We see that God is kind and gracious and merciful. It's easy to focus on these attributes of God, but we also know that God is a just God. And because he is just, he must punish sin. But as we have seen, you know, we've all fallen sin or fallen short in sin and we've not lived up to God's standard. We've all broken God's laws. And if God's just, then he cannot let us slide. As a matter of fact, you can say that God's wrath is his love and action against sin. So if sin goes unpunished, God is no longer just. And if he's no longer just, then he's no longer God. So that presents us a problem. How can a just God be merciful to sinners? We stand guilty before a holy and a just God. We are facing his wrath. But what we see now is God's love made manifest in a third way. God's love was made manifest in the sending of a son. God's love was made manifest in the purpose or the goal of his love. God sent his son with the goal or the intention that we might have eternal life. Now God's love is made manifest in the beneficiaries of his love. He's made his love manifest in his body. Those who belong to him. But how does he do it? Jesus became a propitiation for our sins. So what's that? What's a propitiation? It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. Jesus took on flesh. He lived a perfect and a sinless life. He went to the cross, the spotless lamb. On the cross, he bore the wrath of God. God sent Jesus into the world so that we might live. But the problem was that sin still had to be punished. So Jesus took on flesh, still fully God. He became fully man to be our personal representative and took our place and our punishment. Just as God set his love on us before the foundation of the world, Jesus was foreordained to die a death that he didn't deserve so that we could have eternal life. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin and took on the wrath of God. In J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God, he describes this as peace through wrath. God's wrath is satisfied in the death of Christ so he can reach out to us in mercy. And Jesus being the perfect sacrifice, he turns the wrath of God from those who trust in him. 
And he did this so we might be the beneficiaries in the fact that we would inherit eternal life. When we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas, we remember that the cross was looming. Andrew said last week the ultimate reason of the incarnation was for the glory of God. Doesn't this make grace so much sweeter? God didn't have to save any of us. God is glorious without us. God wasn't lonely. The Trinity shared perfect love and communion. But in God's love, he sent Jesus to be a propitiation so that that communion and love might be extended to us. Jesus saves us because it brings glory to God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if the death of Christ on the cross is the true meaning of the incarnation, then there is no gospel without the cross. Christmas by itself is no gospel. The life of Christ is no gospel. Even the resurrection, important as it is in the total scheme of things, is no gospel by itself. For the good news is not just that God became man, nor that God has spoken to reveal a proper way of life for us, or even that death, the great enemy, is conquered. Rather, the good news is that sin has been dealt with, of which the resurrection is proof that Jesus has suffered its penalty for us as our representative so that we might never have to suffer it and that therefore all who believe in him can look forward to heaven. Christmas alone is not the good news. It's not good news until we get to this point, the point that Jesus became a propitiation for our sins. Outside of Christianity, the thought is that it's only appropriate to love those who are worthy to be loved. But Romans 8, however, says God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. We don't deserve any of the love that God has revealed in Christmas. We are a rebellious people who love the dark and we hate the light. Your sin deserved the wrath of God. My sin deserved the wrath of God, but Jesus bore the wrath of God so that those who place their faith in him would no longer stand in condemnation. He shed his blood, becoming the atonement for sin. He died so that we might live. Maybe this morning you're here and you say, I don't know this love. This is an invitation. God's love has been revealed to us in Christ. We are sinners in need of a savior. Jesus lived a perfect life, which we cannot do. He died a death that we all deserve. He bore the wrath of God on the cross. He died, was buried, and on the third day rose again. And if you repent of your sins and believe this gospel, then you will experience the truth that God sent his son so that we might live. If you are a believer here today, this should humble you before the Lord, knowing that it's only by the love of God you have tasted his goodness and entered into fellowship with him. We should move away from self-dependence. We know that we are, as the redeemed, we're still going to continue to fail. We're still going to continue to fall short. We're still going to continue to sin, but continue to trust in Jesus. Let this love of God point you to him. And as we reflect on the, God, on the love God has shown us, I want to ask the question, 
Do you love others with the same preemptive love? Do you love others first with an unconditional love? Is this reflective in your gospel witness? Do you love others enough to take them, take this love God offers to them? Is it reflective in the way you approach the body here at Redeemer? Are you growing in love for one another? Are you willing to take the first step to know someone here that you're not really acquainted with as much as others? If not, let the love of God drive you to be, to have a greater love for, you know, the fellow believers here. So in closing, Christmas openly displays what God's love looks like. God is loving the fact that in grace, he sent his only son to dwell among man to manifest God's love to us. The love is manifested in the gift that Jesus was sent into the world so that we can know God and we are invited into the fellowship with him. It was manifested in gold. Jesus came so that we might have eternal life that we would be saved from the second death and spend eternity with him. And this love was manifested in the grace of God. We have sinned against God, but Christ has become the propitiation. He drank from the cup of God's wrath so that those who trust him no longer live facing condemnation. So this Christmas, let us revel or bask in the love of God. Christmas can easily distract us from the truth of God's love. The stress of family or the stress of money can push us away from the central message of Christmas. You know, we're so busy that we often do not pause and reflect on these truths. But this is a love we don't deserve and it's been extended to us. Let this drive us to worship. The sovereign creator of the universe has come in flesh to save people. You know the line from the song, Sooner Count the Stars, the death of Christ deserves eternal song. This commands our worship. Let the thought that you deserve God's wrath, but Jesus absorbed it on your behalf, make you cling to him. Let it increase your faith and bring perseverance as you continue to follow him. Also this Christmas, let the love of God you've experienced overflow in your love for others. This is not an easy time of the year. It's easy to take our frustrations out on others. If you go to Birmingham and get in traffic, you'll see this. But let this love be on your mind as you come together with your families. Let's keep these truths central. It should fuel our love for others. The truth alone that God loves us, show, this should overwhelm our hearts and drive us to love him more. But it also should overflow to fellow believers, to our families, to our neighbors, and a love for them. God's redeeming a people for himself and for his glory. Let that turn our hearts to him and, and worship because we see at Christmas that God's love is central. And we've seen it manifested through the gift of his son and his son's propitiation for our sins.